Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. So exciting to start this new uh, fall sermon series together with you uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place around the year, around the years, the, the fifth century BC. Uh, and it's a, a story about a nation which was taken into captivity and has returned from exile. It was a very tumultuous time, a violent time in terms of ancient warfare. Uh, We can try to wrap our minds around it, but we tend to glamorize it and we tend to sanitize it, but we really should not do that. And so in this series, we want to get close to it. Uh, We want to smell it. Uh, We want to uh, taste it, if you will. In modern warfare, uh, we kill from a distance. Uh, We know modern weaponry. We know cyber warfare. We know drone warfare. But in ancient warfare, uh, you killed at arm's length. Uh, In ancient warfare, you killed up close. Uh, and you uh, went to war, and you knew that your family was at risk of being taken captive uh, into slavery by the enemies that you were fighting. This is what has happened to the whole nation of Israel in the year 586 B.C., when judgment from God came through uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire because of their sin of idolatry. The book of 2 Chronicles concludes the tragic story of Israel's monarchy in this way. Take a look at this text. Uh, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again. Those are his prophets. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He, meaning God, brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors." And thus ends the kingdom of Israel. Thus ends the Davidic dynasty. Thus ends the monarchy. It's over. There was no more Jerusalem. There was no more temple. There was no more functioning priesthood. And everybody's gone. It's a sad story. Uh, We just finished a series through the book of Psalms, the playlist. And it's good to know the context of some of those Psalms. Psalm 137 describes emotionally how the children of God felt during all of this. Take a look. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There our captors asked us for songs, and they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But they answered, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Just devastating. This is the context of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the story of a defeated people who desperately needed one thing, restoration. And I wonder, as we begin this sermon series today, if anybody in here can relate to that. I think many of us feel like we've been through a really rough patch these past few years in our world. Maybe you can relate to this sentiment. You, like many other people, are feeling like our own culture and our own world needs to be restored, and the walls of our lives have been sacked and broken down. Living your faith today, while 
feeling like you're constantly being opposed has been difficult. And the last few years have been really hard on all of us. Between the pandemic uh, crisis and our political divisions, we are now so polarized as a culture, red versus blue, toxic political conversations everywhere. We always hear about indictments and impeachments every single day. These are stressful economic times with runaway inflation, rising gas prices, worker shortage, and supply chain issues that won't seem to be resolved. And with the cultural shifts happening today on issues like sexuality, it feels like we've been through 30 years of change in three years. And our use of technology now with AI and other innovations has been rapidly advancing. And oh yeah, there's a war going on in Ukraine with no end in sight and no consensus on our role or what should we be doing about any of this. And here's an idea though, I have an idea. Why don't we share with everybody, why don't everybody share what we think on social media about it? Everybody has an opinion on everything. Amplify the extremes, mute the common sense middle. What is happening? It feels like cultural whiplash. And the church, the church has been through some hard changes and reputational issues lately. Have you noticed there's been a lot of church scandals? Mark Driscoll, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill was an extremely popular podcast. We have leaders like Brian Houston with Hillsong and Pastor Carl Lentz in New York City, uh, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Matt Chandler, so many Christian leaders uh, who we respected now in the spotlight and not for good reasons. And it's not just individuals, is it? It's also institutions. It's the Catholic Church. Oh no, it's the Southern Baptist Convention, blaming victims, covering up abuse. The list goes on and on and on. These realities are causing the next generation to flee the church. And I'm telling you, if the enemy had a plan to discourage God's people and to divide the church and to decimate the culture, he picked the perfect plan. We need a path toward restoration. That's why we're doing this series. Because in the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jewish people had been through a cultural crisis of their own. They were attacked, they were marginalized, they were beat down, they were thrown into exile, they spent 70 years in, in Babylon, in captivity, and now they are faced with an overwhelming amount of issues to address, and they come back to a total mess. So I wonder, as we start this series, what is the path that God gave his people towards restoration back then? And could we maybe learn something about a similar path toward restoration for our own selves and our own lives? So I'm excited about this sermon series, and I want to ask you this question as we start. What needs to be restored in your life? I want you to personalize this series for you. Where in your life do you need restoration? I'm excited about this because my heart is for God to restore something in your life. Is it something physical or something spiritual, or something vocational or something relational? Maybe it's in your own relationship with God or your family or your career or your prayer life, or maybe you need God to restore your own broken heart. Does anybody in here have some broken things and some messy things and maybe even some dead things in their lives that need to be restored? Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. Here's the good news, friends. The Bible teaches that our God, we serve a God who's not just able to restore from time to time. He's like in the restoration business. It's like his number one specialty. Our God is a God of restoration. That's the story, not just of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the story of the whole Bible. 
Hebrew expert Bruce Walkey summarize it, summarizes it this way. He says, the Bible is about God bringing glory upon himself by restoring paradise after humanity lost it through a loss of faith in God that led to rebellion against his rule. This is what our God is doing. This is their story, but this is our story, and this is one of the major themes in this series. Ezra and Nehemiah is just a tale of restoration. As we delve into these texts, we will explore some timeless lessons that offer us principles of restoration for our own lives as well. And so for the next three months, this is where we're going to be. And today we're going to look at the first three chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, just out of curiosity, I've been taking a straw poll. How many of you have ever sat through a series on the book of Ezra before? This is like something you've done before. Okay, like just a couple of us. I think this is kind of a unique book of the Bible to go through, but I think it's important, and there's some missing lessons here for, for all of us. So in Ezra chapters 1 through 3, we're going to see three parts to the message for this morning. Uh, I'll put them on the screen for you. Chapter 1, we're going to see the decree. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to see the return. And then chapter 3, we're going to see that the rebuilding begins. And from this opening section, there's going to be some timeless principles that we need in our own lives today. So that's where we're headed, and why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? God, I know my brothers and sisters have so many areas in their lives uh, that are in need of restoration. I know I do. And I ask God that you would perform this work and help us uh, to see who you are, to see your mercy in a fresh way, and to answer your calling on our lives with excitement and faith as your people did back then. So use your word today to inspire your people, to bless your people, and to restore your broken people right where we live to a place of wholeness to a place of shalom, to a place of peace. For we ask that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Before I read verse one, I just wanna give a little background, a timeline to kind of orient ourselves to the context of where we are in the biblical story. So you can see there's a timeline I'll put on the screen starting from left to right. God calls a man named Abraham. That was around the year 2000 BC. Not exactly, but that's how I remember it. God, God called Abraham around 2000 BC to establish a new nation, the nation of Israel. A lot happens. They go down to Egypt. There's an exodus. There's a conquest. But about a thousand years later, he calls another man named David to lead his monarchy. Right after David, the kingdom of Israel splits in two. There's the north and there's the south. Due to their idolatry, the north is taken into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C., and the south is taken into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. We just read about that. They spend 70 years in exile, 70 years in Babylon, 70 years over there in modern-day Iraq, and now that time is over. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the post-exilic time period, post-exile, after the exile, and they tell the story of the Israelites' return to the land. And as you get to the end of Nehemiah, you get to the end of the Old Testament. I know it's not the last book in your Old Testament, but it's the chronological end to the Old Testament story. Literally, the next thing that's going to happen on God's clock is Christmas. So as we finish up this series in, in late November and we enter into Christmas season, it'll be the perfect tie-in as we go to... I know you're not thinking about Christmas yet, but that, that's part of the, how this works here in, in planning purposes. So that's kind of the timeline. Here's the big picture to orient ourselves to what's going on just in these books more narrowly. Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. All of our ancient copies were originally put together. We broke them up separately later. We shouldn't have done that. But these two books belong together, and there's three major sections to these two books. 
So the first section is Ezra chapters 1 to 6. Then you have Ezra 7 to 10. Then you have the book of Nehemiah. The first six chapters feature a key leader named Zerubbabel. I know that's hard to pronounce, but his name's Zerubbabel. You'll get that. And his business is about rebuilding the temple. In the second section, section 2, Ezra 7 through 10, this is about the leadership of a man named Ezra. I know the book is called Ezra. We don't meet him till chapter 7. Uh, he's the one who's going to be rebuilding the people of God. I love Ezra. Uh, he's a Bible nerd like I am, and he's going to be a fantastic character for us. And then you have the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah becomes the key leader, and his task is rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the people, rebuilding the walls. With all of that said as an overview, now let's dive into Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. The story begins like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, I could spend the whole sermon on this first verse. It's so amazing. There are some really important characters that are introduced to us here that we need to know about. First of all, we meet this guy Cyrus. He's the new king of, of Persia. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. The Babylonian Empire has been, has been conquered by the Persian Empire. There's a new empire now, and there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Cyrus. This verse is so amazing because this verse demonstrates that even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of despair, our God still remains in complete control. Did you see that from verse 1? Who's the one who moves in the heart of Cyrus? The Lord. The God of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. God here is the initiator of all of the action. Aslan is on the move. God is the one stirring in the heart of Cyrus. No matter who's in charge, the Bible teaches that our God is actually on the throne. He's absolutely sovereign, and he's the one executing his plan. That's good news, that our Heavenly Father has a plan, and his timing is always perfect. Though he may use unlikely means to accomplish his purposes, in fact, God can even use ungodly rulers to bring about his purposes if he so chooses to do that. And we're going to see that several times in this series. Why? Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21, the heart of the king is in the hand of God. And so, friends, the challenge for us right here in verse 1 is we need to trust in the one who's on the throne above Cyrus and above all earthly rule and authority, knowing that he's always working his plan and always working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's good news. So what did Cyrus say? What's the decree? Well, drop down with me, if you will, to verse 2. It says this. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. So right here in these first few verses, we learn about one of the major themes in these books right off the bat. We learn that our God keeps his promises to his people. God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah, you can look it up later, chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, that his people would return from captivity after 70 years. And here we are, 70 years later, God is making good on his word. And here's what that means, friends. We need to know that God's promises don't fail. God's promises do not fail. We, his people, might fail. They, his people, did fail. And that could happen, but God's promises never fail. Not only that, this is crazy. There's actually no 
power, absolutely no power on earth that could ever cause God's promises to fail. Because the greatest power on earth at that time was the Persian Empire. And not only were they not able to stop God's promises from coming to pass, but here we see that they're the very means by which the promises of God will be fulfilled. Cyrus is the one who's going to send them back. Isn't this amazing? Now, you might be sitting here wondering, like, is this all really true? Did, did all this stuff really happen? Is this story reality? Many skeptics and critics of the Bible doubted the story of post-exilic Israel, especially during the rise of higher criticism. And you might say, is there any, any evidence for this? Well, in 1879, some archaeologists discovered what's now called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a barrel-shaped cylinder of baked clay. It's about nine inches long. And it was an artifact found in the temple of Marduk in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. It was placed in this temple like a time capsule. And it's now housed in the British Museum. It contains an inscription on it. I don't know if you can see those letters on the the cylinder. But it, it contains an inscription. And guess what it says? The text talks about how Cyrus was allowing people that were displaced by the Babylonian Empire to return back to their ancestral homelands. It's exactly the decree that we find in Ezra chapter 1, almost word for word. It's astonishing. Friends, there is an amazing amount of of truth that's found through the field of archaeology that verifies that the scriptures are actually accurate. This tells us there really was a royal ruler named Cyrus who really didn't take a more gracious and tolerant posture towards captive peoples. And he really did allow them to return back to their own homelands. And this proves that the the Bible story in Ezra chapter 1 really happened the way that it says it happened. Many of the Bible's characters and places and events have been verified like this. Why? Because they're grounded in real history. There's actually an astonishing amount of support for the reliability of the Bible. It far exceeds the reliability of any other ancient text that we have in history, and it proves to us that God's word has been passed down from generation to generation with an amazing amount of accuracy. These are not just words on a page. What we're reading today are the words of God, words that offer hope and restoration to a dying world. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. This is why we teach through books of the Bible here at Millington Baptist Church like Ezra and Nehemiah. We have a style of preaching that's called expositional preaching. And so what that means is we just simply teach the Bible books from beginning to end, verse by verse. Because we believe that's what God's people need as the steady diet. And the reason for that is because we believe the Bible is inspired, and it's inerrant, and it's infallible, every single word of it, and that affects everything we do in our church. That affects how we do Awana ministry, that affects how we do youth ministry, that affects how we do worship, how we do missions, uh, how we even preach from this pulpit. Everything is grounded in and submitted to biblical authority. So that's why we're going through this book. So back to the decree. This is the decree of Cyrus. He makes this uh, announcement, and then, then what happens? Well, let's continue. Take a look at verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. So pause and notice a couple things right here. Did you notice in verse 5 that the same God who moved in the heart of Cyrus is now moving in the hearts of his people? He's pursuing them. This God is up to something. Even though they're in exile, he's still after them. And friends, 
This is the same God that's stirring you. This is the same God that's moving you. This is the same God that's pursuing you. It's the same God that's calling you and calling me. Just like them, we too were born in exile from God because of our sin. But just like them, God still pursues us and moves in our hearts and wants us back for himself. Now notice verse 6. Verse 6 is very interesting. Their neighbors bless them on their way out the door. Did you, does that remind you of anything where God's people are in captivity somewhere and then they're about to be let go and they're about to be set free and then on their way out the door, their captors actually give them a bunch of stuff? Does that remind you of anything? What book of the Bible? Exodus. Very good. You guys get an A plus on that exam for today. Why would the writer of Ezra and Nehemiah be echoing the story of Exodus? The reason is to show us that there's continuity. The reason is to show us that the identity of the people of God is still intact. The reason is that the author wants to tell us that I, God, I, God, still have a people. I, God, still have a plan for them. They are still the apple of my eye. Their names are still written on the palms of my hand. I will never let them go. Can a mother forget her nursing child? I will never forget my people. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you my name. You are mine. This God that was with Moses and the Exodus is still with God. And the greater Moses here, Ezra, who's gonna be a Moses-like figure, calling his people out of captivity and making his people into all that he wants them to be. This is so amazing. This is just chapter one. And then chapter one, you can read it yourself. It's all this inventory stuff that they bring back to the land. It lists every cup, every bowl, every fork, every knife, every single thing that they bring back from every piece of furniture, it's all gonna be restored. Everything that was taken, it's all going back. God's gonna return everything back to his people. Why? Because God's a God of restoration. That's good news. You know what that means? It means if God kept his promises to them, the same God will keep his promises to you and me. Because God is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. We worship the same God. So here's the first lesson from Ezra chapter one. Here's the lesson we need to grasp in this first chapter. It's this. We pursue restoration when we remember God's promises. That's step one. Can we say that together? We pursue restoration when we remember God's promises. This is a matter of faith at the very beginning. It's a heart check. It's a gut check. I know this might be a hard season for you. But do you remember God's promises for you? Do you believe God will keep his promises to you? I wanna challenge you to let your faith arise a little bit right here during this tough season. Even though you don't know how God could make good on his promise, believe that he will make good on his promise and trust God to do what he says he will do in your life. Do you believe that? Faith is where restoration begins. Man, this is just chapter one. I am so fired up. It's unreal. Unbelievable, I need to calm down. Okay, <laughs> movement two. Movement two, we've seen the decree, now we're gonna see the return. Movement two is about the return. This is chapter two. So in Ezra chapter two, many of God's people return back to their land. Take a look at chapter two, verse one. It says, now these are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town in the company of Zerubbabel. They return under the leadership of this man named Zerubbabel. In every great movement, there are always great people involved. Some people are big, upfront characters, direct, charismatic, type A, 
alpha visionaries. Then others are more behind-the-scenes people who don't get as much glory. They're more detail-oriented. They're quiet. They're studious. Uh, They are working behind the scenes, and they are just as important as the people out front. God needs all of his people to get to be part of his plan. Now, what's interesting about this guy named Zerubbabel is his name actually means planted in Babylon. Let me put that on the screen for you. Zerub means to plant, and then Babylon, planted in Babylon. Now, think about that. I'm sure that's not what he wanted in his life. I'm sure that was not like his heart's desire to be planted in a foreign land. But that was his story. And I'm sure that somebody in here can relate to this guy. And so let me ask you a question. Where has God planted you? I'm sure there's parts of your life and your story that seem painful, that seem confusing, that seem disorienting, and you're like, what is God doing? Why did he plant me in this job right now? Why did God plant me in central New Jersey for my whole life? Why did God plant me in this dysfunctional family from which I came? Why did God plant me where he planted me? It can feel disorienting. It can feel confusing to figure out God's will in your life. But the Bible teaches that God sets out the boundaries of your habitation and he sets out where and when and with whom you are to live your life. What that means, friends, is you're working in the place you're working because God has you there. And you are in the family that you're in because God planted you there. And students, you have the locker next to the guy who has his locker next to you because God put you next to him with that locker next to you. And you're in math class next to the dude with algebra and you go see him every day and God puts you next to him this year. You are where you are because God has planted you where you are. You were made on purpose, for a purpose. You're his workmanship, and God planted you where you are to make a difference for him. This is Zerubbabel. He embraces God's purpose, even though he was planted in Babylon. And he wasn't the only one. He was called to lead a large group of people who were also born over there in Babylon, planted over there in Babylon, and he's going to lead them out of captivity. And the rest of chapter 2 is just a list of individuals and families who followed God's calling from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem. Let me drop down to verse 64, and I'm going to skip 63 verses in like one second. Ready? Here we go. So verse 64 says this. I'll put it on the screen. The whole company numbered 42,360 people. Chapter 2 is just a list of names of who those people were, individuals and families. They'll come back in waves, actually three waves. In this wave, there's like 50,000 Jews who return back to their homeland. This is the first time they're called Jews, by the way, because they're going back to Judea. I'm not going to read all their names, but I just want you to think about them because they are individuals, and they willingly left their comfortable lives where they were in exile and set out on a journey to rebuild the temple, and their response teaches us about the importance of responding to God's call on our lives as well. Let me show you this map. The trip from Babylon to Jerusalem was 900 miles. There's no cars, there's no bus route, you're walking. 900 miles would take you a few months to get from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. If you're really quick on horses, maybe a few weeks, but probably it was more like a few months worth of a journey. And there they are, they're cruising along. Can you just imagine being in this group of 50,000 people walking back from Babylon to Jerusalem and how exciting it must have been? This is it. This is like the second exodus. God is calling his people back home. God is fulfilling his word, and they're laughing and they're shouting with joy. In fact, again, there's a historical psalm that fits right here. This is the context of Psalm 126. Well, let me put that word, those words on the screen for you just to read a little bit. This is when they write this psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. 
Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. It's so beautiful. All those who are swept up by God's stirring and respond to the invitation are going to a place that they've never been, a home that they've never known, yet it is theirs by God's promise and it is theirs by God's decree and it is theirs because of God's word. And aren't they a little bit like us? Haven't we all been planted in Babylon? Haven't we all, because of our sin, been born into exile? Don't we all realize that this world is not our home and it will never, ever feel like our home and that we are strangers and aliens here on a pilgrimage to the promised land? Like the Israelites, we must be willing to leave behind the familiar and embark on the path that God has us on. By doing so, we align ourselves with God's purpose and experience his restoration and blessing. So here's a lesson from chapter two. If we could sum up chapter two with an application point, it's this, we pursue restoration when we respond to God's calling. Can we say that together? We pursue restoration when we respond to God's calling. So what is that for you? Where is God calling you to rise up and build in your own life? What's been broken down that needs some attention? Many of you know that we're gonna have this calling workshop at NBC on October 14th. We hope that you'll join us for that. That's really an opportunity to apply these lessons in a very personal way to our own lives and how God's calling us in this particular season individually. We hope that you'll register and join us Saturday, October 14th. You can do that today. So back to our story, God's people return. But here's the thing. Once they got there, there wasn't much to see. The walls of the city had been torn down. The temple had been destroyed. It's rubble. It's ruins. The people set up simple lives for themselves, and they lived there without walls and much of anything. They were surviving, but they weren't really thriving. And that brings us to movement three. We've seen the decree. We've seen the the return. And now we're going to see the rebuilding begins. The context of Ezra 3 is they're laying the foundation of what will be called later in history the second temple. You know there was a first temple. It was built by Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. Here's a picture, a replica of Solomon's temple. It stood for about 400 years from 937 B.C. to 586 B.C. But this temple got wiped out when the Babylonians sacked the city and destroyed everything. And so this is an important theme that I want you to notice and not miss in our text. It showed up earlier in chapter 1, but I want to really highlight it right here. The king did not send the Jews back home simply to live there. They were sent home to build the temple. That was the objective. It would be hard to underestimate the importance of rebuilding the temple. It would be hard to overstate the importance of rebuilding the temple. All of the Bible's references to the return mention the temple. I really want you to remember that because it's going to be important. And the principle here is like, first things first. That's the principle. They needed to prioritize God's house. Friends, the Lord God will not play second runner-up in my life to my other passions and my other desires. This is why we're told, seek first the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus says, hey, you've left your first love. This is why the Genesis chapter one begins with those four words, in the beginning, God. Those are not just four words that start the creation story. They're like a philosophy for your whole life. In the beginning, God. God first, God first, God first, God first. The same thing is true for us that was true for them. If we want to pursue restoration, we have to live by acknowledging that God is really first and the center of everything. God wants the priority. God wants the preeminence in my heart and in my life. God wants the preference. God must captivate your heart as the central focus of your deepest affections. So if we want restoration, 
We've got to remember first things first. More on this later. So here they are. They're beginning the, the rebuilding just for the foundation of the second temple. Drop down to verse 10, if you will. Chapter 3, verse 10 says this. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord and prescribed, as prescribed by David, the king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. And what did they say? Let's say it together. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever good. And all the people gave a, gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So Ezra chapter 3 presents this beautiful scene of worship and adoration and celebration. All the people are gathered together in the midst of this rubble. It's just a foundation at this point. It's not the whole thing, but they're offering sacrifices. They've got the altar built, and they're giving thanks to God already. This is a happy time. They recognize the importance of expressing gratitude and the importance of worship, first things first, even though the work wasn't complete yet. This serves as a reminder for us to cultivate the same heart of worship even in the midst of my unfinished projects and even in the midst of my difficulties, to be happy in the rubble, so to speak, because I'm doing God's work. When we come together as a community of believers in the middle of our busy lives, expressing our praise and thanksgiving, it strengthens our faith and encourages us to keep going about God's work and God's calling. So here they are. They're laying the foundation of the second temple. They're worshiping. But what's really intriguing here is there's a mixed response. The text continues like this in verse 12. Take a look at what happens. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Now, isn't that something? On the one hand, we have cheers. And then on the other hand, we have tears. See, the older leaders became sad when they saw this. They said, don't you remember the first temple? It was bigger. It was bolder. It was better. There was more gold. There was more beauty. There was more glory. But this new temple... This just isn't the same as it used to be. So you have these two groups, and one group is excited, and then one group is sad. And friends, I think this is exactly how a lot of us feel today. In a sense, what I'm trying to say here is this. We say, I remember how it used to be in our culture. Back when we were younger, our culture was more tender towards the gospel. Back then, people valued spirituality more. Back then, people respected religion. They respected Christians. They respected churches. They respected the clergy. It doesn't feel like that anymore. Now it feels like Christianity is on the margins. Now we're being isolated. Now many of our people are deconstructing, and these are not some strangers. These are like our kids and our grandkids. And we're sad, and we wish we could go back. But here's the reality. We can't go back. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand there's a time to celebrate the past, and that is good. I love history, and I love our history, but we cannot get stuck there. That is not the path toward restoration. Because this generation right now, the one that we live in right now in 2023, this is the generation that God has called us to love right now. So we need to stop treating this second generation like their second best. 
We cannot lead into the future if we keep pining for the good old days, complaining about what's been lost. You know what that is? That's an idolatry of the past that misses the grace of God for the present and the glory-filled hope God has for us in the future. What I'm saying, friends, is we need to embrace what God's doing right now, the church we have right now, not the one from the 60s. Not the church from the 80s, not the church from the 90s, not even the church from 2019, the church we have right now, the culture we have right now. And so here's what we have to remember. The moment we're in doesn't change the mission we're on. Let me put that on the screen just so that it's really, really clear. The moment we're in doesn't change the mission that we're on. Maybe I don't have a slide for that, sorry. Uh, if you could go back then, sorry about that. So here at NBC, this is, oh, there we go, thank you. Appreciate that. Here at NBC, we're going to embrace the fact that this is our moment and this is our mission, and we're going to keep moving forward towards that mission. Our vision is to, to, to make disciples of Jesus Christ who are firmly planted, growing together, made to multiply. That's the, the vision that we have for our church. And despite all of the rapid cultural change all around us, we believe God still has us on his mission here. And this is our task. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Sometimes we wish we wish it would go back to the way it was like five years ago or maybe 20 years ago. And that felt more normal. But here's the reality. We can't go back. We can only move forward. And sometimes moving forward will look different than the way it used to be or even the way we expect it to look. And so God, here's the challenge. Here's kind of the gut check. Will you embrace the moment that God has called you to in this world? Will you respond to what God is doing with cheers or tears? And I'll put that application point back up now. Here's the point of chapter three. We pursue restoration when we embrace our moment. Can we say that together? We pursue restoration when we embrace our moment fully. This is your moment. This is not like a dress rehearsal for the rest of your life. Like, this is it. This is your life. This is your moment that God has you on. And here's what you have to embrace. Jesus Christ handpicked you for this moment. He picked you. Turn to your neighbor and be like, he picked you. He picked you. He picked you. He picked me. This is our purpose. The Bible says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? This is what restoration is. It's not going back to exactly the way it was. It's something completely new. It's something I've never seen before. You know, as I studied this text, I sometimes begin to wonder, I wonder what was God's perspective as he looked down from heaven on them building the foundation of the second temple and seeing some of them crying and seeing some of them sad because God, from his perspective, he knew what he was gonna do. And I thought, you know, maybe God was up in heaven thinking, you guys wanna go back? Don't you realize on this foundation that you're laying right now, that's where I'm gonna send my very son? That's the temple foundation upon which he's gonna walk with his feet? You wanna go backwards? I'm doing something new. I've got plans for you and your future. You wouldn't even believe what I'm gonna do inside of this second temple. You wanna go back to Solomon? Something much greater than Solomon is coming, friends. Look forward and prepare for what God's doing next. It's the same principle today. We need to look forward. God wants to restore his people, and the path forward toward restoration is found eyes wide open for where we are right now today. Because here's the truth. Normal isn't coming back. 
Jesus is coming back. Normal isn't coming back. Jesus is. And he's coming back to look for a restored church. And he's coming back as the true and better Ezra to restore not just the physical temple, but he's going to make this whole world into a temple because of his blood and because of his grace and his gospel. He is making all things new. This is where we're headed. This is our destiny. In the meantime, he's looking for a church, you and me, that are really seeking after him and his restorative power. That's my prayer for us during this series. May we be a church that's seeking after the one who's restoring this whole world. May we rise up and build. I want to invite the worship team to come for one more song. And as they come, let's just ask this question. How do I get the most out of this series this fall? Let me give you three points of application to consider for yourself. First, Read God's word for yourself during this series. Each week, read the text that we're going to be studying together ahead of time. Get a notebook. Get a dedicated journal for yourself that's just for this series so that you can record not so much what the preacher's telling you, but what God is telling you through this series about your own life and your own pursuit of restoration. Read God's word. If you're a Spotify person, the, the Streetlights has a new uh, playlist on Ezra. It's fantastic. It just makes it just come alive. Listen to God's word. Read God's word for yourself. Number two. Study the background material. We've compiled all of this on our sermon series webpage. Take some time, familiarize yourself with all of the context of this series. And then number three, process this with your small group. If you haven't joined a small group, there's still time. You can check those out online. Pick one that works for you and your schedule. And if you have already joined a small group, bring your notes to your group and study and discuss and share and pray with each other about all that God is challenging you to. I'm praying that God is going to speak directly and personally to each of you in this series, breathing fresh wind, bringing restoration in your life, and this will be fantastic for us as a church, as a whole. So as we begin, we pursue restoration uh, by remembering these these three things today. Number one, we remember God's promises. Number two, we respond to God's calling. And number three, we embrace the moment that God has us in. Can you imagine a church that really really took a hold of those three realities? Can you imagine a church that really was ready to rise up and build? Let's be that church. Can we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the timeless wisdom that's found in your word, in the scriptures. Thank you for preserving this text. It just seems so relevant for where we are today. So as we reflect on the story of Ezra, we pray that you'd help us to apply these lessons to our lives. Remind us of the promises that you've given to us personally. Remind us of your calling. Strengthen our trust in your sovereign plan. Give us courage to take the next step of faith to respond to your calling and empower us to overcome any obstacles in the way. God, may we be a community. Dare we ask that we would be a community that rises up and builds all that you're calling us to build for you in this moment for our time and for our good, and for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.